From the Sydney Opera House, this is It's a Long Story, a podcast that uncovers the lives and stories behind the ideas. I'm Edwina Throsby. Joan Morgan grew up in the Bronx, alongside a growing hip-hop movement in the 1980s. Coming of age in the 90s, as hip-hop became an international cultural phenomenon, Joan Morgan became one of the first women to write about hip-hop for magazines. In 1999, Morgan coined the term hip-hop feminism in her groundbreaking book, When Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost. The book applied a feminist lens to a notoriously sexist genre. More recently, she penned a definitive analysis of the miseducation of Lauren Hill to mark the 20th anniversary of that classic seminal album. Joan Morgan, it is such a pleasure to have you here at It's a Long Story. I'm very happy to tell my long story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, your long story started back in Jamaica, where you were born. I was born there, yeah. Who were your parents? Uh, Well, I was born in Jamaica in a place called Beeson Spring. My parents met in that parish, and so my father's mother was our Rachel Morgan, and she started the branch of the Seventh-day Adventist Church there. So they were very sort of prominent, small-town people. My father had absolutely no interest in religion at all, so I did not inherit that upbringing. It's around the time of independence, Jamaican independence. And so he was um, a founding member of the Jamaica Labor Party. Um, Your father? Yeah. He and uh, Lady Bustamante were very, very good friends. Really? And so through Lady Bustamante, she, you know, he met her husband and he worked very hard as one of the founding members and stayed involved in Jamaican politics even after he migrated for most of his life. So I grew up going back and, you know, the, they were sort of my, de- the Bustamantes were like my de facto godparents, basically. Why did your parents choose to Emigrate to the States. Emigrate. So my mother, um, because my father had political connections, my mother was a teacher. My father was able to get her into what was a domestics program. So it's about 1968 in the States, and there's a shortage of domestic labor, which coincides with the civil rights movement. Mm. Um, but you could get uh, foreign labor to come and work, particularly from Caribbean countries, for very, very little money. In time, I think in, in a year, she you were also able to file for your children and your spouse, which is what she did, which is how my father and I came over. But they came, my mom in particular, came for the opportunity for an education. Um, getting a college education was really important to her. But honestly, she wanted to travel. Mm. And... Um, she felt like that was the way she was going to be able to do it. So when they moved to America, you settled in New York City in South Bronx. Mm-hmm. What was that neighbourhood like back then? It was a one-bedroom apartment. Now in New York terms, I look back and I was probably not that small of an apartment, but it was a one-bedroom apartment, which meant for me, my mom, my dad, eventually my little brother, and then my mother's oldest son came over to live with us from Jamaica. And so until I was about 14 or 15, it was all of us in that, like, one-bedroom apartment. Um, How my, did you negotiate space? And I'm the only girl. Mm. So space is something that's incredibly still uh, important to me. Um the bathroom became space. <laughs> it's been really long periods of time in the bathroom, which frustrated everyone, but no one can really make you come out of the bathroom. And uh, find, finding quiet space was really hard. One of the incredible things my parents did to sort of give me 
that is that I learned in playing piano that I would create space because I was making music. Everyone, it was hard for the other kind of intrusive voices Mm -hmm. to take over the space. And so I came home one day, I'll never forget this, and there was a, they must have bought it on credit and paid it off eventually, but there was a new Baldwin piano there. And they also found a way for me to take classical piano lessons for like 10 years. And I, to this day, don't know how they could have possibly afforded it. But I I think they knew I needed an escape in the house. And that was it because escaping in the street was a different, um, it was dangerous, you know. Uh, It's not, I still did it, particularly because when I was a teenager and sort of fell in love with hip hop, I would wander a lot. Um, (laughs) You know, my parents would think I was one place and I was definitely another place. But life when I was little, yeah, you, you develop a really vivid imagination because your physical mobility is sort of limited. I mean, we had playgrounds, but we played in a lot of rubble. We jumped on burnt mattresses. We made things out of things that were thrown out of windows. And there was just a lot of benign neglect. And I would say just a slow simmering anger. There was a lot of gang violence. Um... I mean, I love the Bronx, but I was also really raised that survival meant getting out. The gentrification is not as quick in the Bronx now as it's been in other places. But, you know, everyone now recognizes its proximity to Manhattan, the same South Bronx communities. And I walk around and I, I cannot believe that those are these condos are going up in places where we basically played in rubble. Mm. Despite having left the Bronx you are still fiercely and proudly um, a Bronx <laughs> girl, right? You self-identify as Absolutely. that all the time. Mm-hmm. What is it about the Bronx that kind of forges that sort of loyalty, that it's not just you, it's like a lot of people? Yeah, I, you know, I think we're a borough that people wrote off. Um, and so the I always say this, the Bronx is very tribal. Like if you're from the Bronx in a particular age, you it's like soldiers who went through a similar battle, you know, a simple, similar war at the same time, whether you served together Bonds or not. Trenches. Yeah, you understand that it took a certain amount of grit. I mean, you know, Cardi B is a typical Bronx girl. Um, Jennifer Lopez is a typical Bronx girl. Like people tell them no and they just keep doing it until they get the the yes. Alexandra um, Ocasio-Cortez, typical Bronx girl. People are ready to write her off. And she's going to be one of the significant, most significant um, political forces. Um, and yeah, she's not going to do it the way that she doesn't have an orthodox beginning because none of us were really afforded orthodox beginnings. Like the Bronx is the borough that won't die and figures it out. So as a Bronx girl, when you started at your expensive elite high school, Mm -hmm. how did you navigate that socially? Um, it was really hard. I felt very, and and it's also in the Bronx, but it's a section of the Bronx that doesn't call itself the Bronx. It, it it's called Riverdale, and people from Riverdale will let you know they're from Riverdale. They don't say they're from the Bronx. Um, I was coming from a home of like hip hop, <laughs> and uh, 
my peers were doing things like going to Studio 54 and Xenon's way too young. Um, and, but at the same time, I really loved it. It was really bucolic. It was almost like a college campus. Um, for the first time in my life, I wasn't really worried about my physical safety. I didn't have that pressure. So it was a mixed bag. I had to um, acculturate to two very different worlds, and they didn't mix. There was no overlap. Um, I'd always been an outsider because I was Black in the South Bronx, but an immigrant. Most of the Black people in the South Bronx at that point had families who migrated from the South. Um, From the South? Yeah. In America? In America. And so the rest of us were from the Caribbean, or you were Latino from the Caribbean. Um, And so I've always sat a little bit outside of whatever the frame is in a context where people are you would make assumptions, but you would probably be wrong. Like, So I had to study African-American history. It's not something that like I knew or was passed down through family tales or I had to understand the significance of the blues or jazz or I wasn't going down south. For I didn't grow up on soul food. Um, there was a learning curve. And so having to make that learning curve again for Fieldston was probably not as foreign for me as someone who had hadn't had to I'd been hadn't had to make it before. I'd been having to make it my entire life. Where did you discover hip hop? Uh, you know, hip hop kind of discovered me. It was impossible not to discover in the South Bronx in the seventies. Like you know, we it was a richer time than it was now. There were music programs in the school. Um there were after school programs. There were public spaces, more public spaces where people could gather. In those public spaces, there we were starting to see things called like jams. There was a park walking distance from my house, a schoolyard. It wasn't a park at a school called uh, 63 on Boston Road. And I don't think it still exists, but that's really where a lot of, a lot of us just gather to listen to this kind of outdoor music. So you were like watching all of these sort of huge gems and 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 participating in them as a as a viewer and as a listener. Do you think if you'd been a boy, you might have been, you know, on the other side of the turntables? I actually didn't have any um, desire to be on the other side of the turntables. I've never had that kind of interest in hip hop, but I also don't. There wasn't that sort of gender tension when I was 13 years old and listening to hip-hop. You had fly girls, you had fly guys. There wasn't a misogyny in its lyrical content to brace myself against or felt exclusive. If anything, you wanted girls at a party, right, Right. for sure. Um, And it wasn't this exclusively male sort of testosterone space until it became an industry. What do you think shifted? Like, why do you think that the commercialization of it brought that out? The initial rappers that were able to get big deals, um, with a few exceptions of like Roxanne Chante, um, were male. And so that's who the record companies dealt with. That's who the music editors dealt with in terms of journalists. Like, it's about who had the access to get those deals first. There were male managers. Like, you know, so I think it, there was an eventual marginalization that commercialization absolutely supported and then um, made much more extreme and worse. Just before we leave your kind of childhood home, you've written 
I was raised by feminists who didn't call themselves feminists, but I think they did a damn good job of instilling really strong feminist sensibility in me. Mm-hmm. I think that there's something about that that comes out a lot, um, particularly in poor families where mm-hmm. um, where mothers, you know, often run the ship mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and, you know, make the decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, but don't have a connection with feminism as it's kind of, you know, understood broadly as a kind of thing that exists mm-hmm. um, as a theory more than a lived experience. Mm-hmm. Was that how you saw it? What do you think your mother was thinking and doing when she was kind of raising you? She was thinking about surviving. That's what she would say. She was thinking about point A to point B and then using um I think the skills that many immigrant women just have is uh, and then using the skills also that many women who are raised in cultures that uh, are more where there's a machismo or men are privileged in a particular way, which is definitely true in Jamaican households. But women find a balance. So all of my brothers and cousins, male cousins, know how to cook Hmm. and well because that's part of the balance, right? My dad worked, but like many Caribbean households, he basically turned his check over to my mother who ran the households. And so um, she had a certain kind of financial power. My dad was not at all thrilled about my mother going to college. And I just remember her, as soon as we were old enough to cook and kind of fend for ourselves a little bit, she lined everyone up and she told us very clearly, like, if you don't cook, you will not eat Mm. and I will get something from the Chinese place around the corner. My father didn't cook one day and she was not playing. She, like, went and got Chinese food at the corner for herself and her children (laughs) and he never tried that again. So, you know, I was able to, um, you know, it was definitely feminism um, I think now after reading Chicken Heads, my book, she would definitely say that she under, she she wouldn't deny being a feminist. You know, it taught me a very pragmatic feminism. I tend to argue less about issues and ideologies and, and very focused on, like, in this set of conditions, how do we get things done? Mm. desire or aspiration to be a writer at all. I think I wrote poetry in high school and college, like most emo teenagers and college students do. I saw it more as a way of just getting stuff out than um, I had any kind of aspirations to be a writer. Also, as a first-generation immigrant, that was not an option. My, My parents were like, you need a job that's going to... An actual job. Right, an actual job. So that wouldn't have even been a discussion. Um, but I was always told that I wrote very well, like on papers or in school. So I graduated and I thought I was going to be... Um, I wanted to be an actor. And so I started taking classes. I started auditioning for things. And I kind of 
felt like the roles that I really wanted to play weren't being written yet. So I think if I had any aspiration toward being a writer, I was starting to think, how could I write screenplays and plays that would create those roles? Um, but basically, I, I I knew I wanted to be an artist is basically what it was. And so my cousin was dating an entertainment lawyer who was uh, the lawyer for a group called uh, Living Color. Mm-hmm. And I went to... Um, hear them. And there was this guy there who was a uh, uh, pretty, I didn't know it at the time because I didn't read The Village Voice. Um, it was a pretty famous uh, cultural critic and a staff writer there and friends with my cousin's boyfriend who was the lawyer. And he felt I should write, basically. Um, and he had a very Svengali thing about him. So um, and he became your boyfriend for a while. He was my yeah, he was my boyfriend for a while. But basically, I think what happened was, I mean, the, how I actually became a writer, a published writer, um, is that the Central Park Jagger rape case happened in New York, and it was a very racially polarizing time. That was when a white woman was raped, raped by uh, an investment banker, um, and the the boys who were accused were basically black and Latino. Um, and so the discussion, there was a lot of discussion about the racism of the media coverage. And the Village Voice was doing a special issue called Blacks and Women, Voices Not Heard. My boyfriend at the time was doing the black part, and he was writing about the racism of the coverage. And I I did not consider myself a feminist at all at that time. And I don't, this is contemporary language that I'm using. I'm sure I didn't say it that way, fresh out of the boogie. But I was just like... You know, the point is, is that if I was a black investment banker jogging through the port, that does not prevent me from being raped. Mm-hmm. Like, no one is going to give me a pass. If if a rapist is out to rape, they're not going to give me a pass because we're the same color. And I feel like that's not anywhere in your piece. So we argued about it. I want to say until like five in the morning. We argued a lot, actually. And um, I don't know, around nine, he called his editor and she sort of said, it's a good angle, but it's not your story. And... This woman can write it all and give it to me in 36 hours. I'll publish it. I really didn't know what it meant to even write. Uh, had no journalism skills whatsoever. Um, and the piece was called The Pro-Rape Culture. And um, it was my first piece. And the voice just kept giving me pieces. And I just kept doing them. And after about two years of that, I was like, okay, I guess, I guess I'm a writer. So throughout the early 90s, you continued writing for The Voice. You wrote, um, you covered the Mike Tyson rape trial in work that you won awards for. Um, you reviewed Ice Cube albums. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you, you were being called upon, I guess. You became, you became the woman voice, mm-hmm. right, um, when there was a story that needed to be written mm-hmm. that had some kind of gender dimension. Mm-hmm. You, you were the go-to girl, it seems. Is that, mm-hmm. is that fair to say? Um, I, th- I think so. I th- and I think also it was just a really e- interesting experiment for the voice. It was sort of like, I don't know, there's a rape trial with a boxer and everyone going will probably be a sports writer. Let's send Joan and see what happens. So I think there was a bit of um, that too. But I think because my first piece was a gender piece that that became uh, one of my lanes really quickly. And I certainly didn't mind it. Mm. Yeah. 
And then out of all of this, a book was brewing, right? (laughs) Kind of the book wasn't really my idea. Um, How did it come about? You know, part of the dynamic of what's happening is I'm a freelance writer for many years. And so part of just living as a freelance writer, I had quit my teaching job, I want to say, in 1991. Um, And then I went to teach a class at the New School um, on hip-hop journalism. And I remember uh, Nelson George saying to me, that's not a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. That's not a a real thing. What scam are you trying to pull with the New School? Um, (laughs) But for me, it was great because I didn't have to be on campus every day and it gave me a chance to write. So I was starting to learn that I could make a living um, as a writer for sure. And so then eventually I did get a job job as a writer, which was at Vibe magazine. It was my first job as a writer and I was one of the original staff writers for the magazine. And I had just, you know, I was doing a lot of writing on hip hop. And because I was a feminist, that angle kept coming up. Um, And the question of how I could be a feminist and still love hip-hop kept coming up. And there was a woman at HarperCollins who contacted my agent and thought it would make a good book um, and asked if I'd ever thought about it. And I actually hadn't thought about writing a book about it, but that made me start thinking about it. One of the things in your book, When Chicken Heads Come Home Home to to Roost... um, One of the things you argue, or the, the way that you frame the the issue is by looking at hip-hop as being the product of a culture. Mm-hmm. And so the misogyny in hip-hop reflects... The culture. ...the problems in the culture. Mm-hmm. And the book is a lot more personal than I was expecting when I first started reading it. You mm-hmm. know, I, th- I thought, having read about it, that it would be um, kind of more theoretical. Mm-hmm. Um but really, you know, it's it's about your experience um, as a black woman mm-hmm. who loves black men mm-hmm. and trying to negotiate that and seeing the parallels between that and loving hip-hop. So you write, we were still trying to create the language for what it meant to love hip-hop, black men, and still hold on to yourself. Mm-hmm. What did you mean? You know, it was really easy to love this thing when we were all confined to these small, isolated neighborhoods. And as it began to take a world stage, and the price for that ascendance seemed to quickly, you know, it was great that, you know, hip-hop was now, like, these were celebrities, and the stories you were doing, like, there were publicists that would fly you places, and cars that would pick you up, and all of this other Stuff, But the price seemed to be, in many ways, I felt like black women became the sacrificial lambs um, because trafficking in the, the misogyny was the music that sold. And so record labels, if they didn't encourage it, certainly were not going to take a stance um, one way or the other in addressing it as a problem. And so I think for many of us, We knew what our commitment was to hip-hop. We knew what we were very sensitive about uh, allowing black men to take the blame for being the products of what is a misogynistic society, not just misogynistic music. And at the same time, we needed to call them out, right? We needed language to call them out and say, I still love you. I still love this culture, but I really do not like what you're doing. 
And more than that, I'm not going to let what you're doing push me out of the culture because as much as you think it's your culture, it's actually our culture. But finding a way to language that Mm. took time. And I think that's actually what the book is. I I mean, one of the things I wrote 20 years ago and I still mean it now is I'm not going to let race loyalty buy me an early tombstone because I hear about all of the things that... um, Black men have gone through, and I'm, I would never say that they haven't gone through, but what I don't hear enough of is what black women gone th- have gone through and the added emotional labor of taking care of black men who are going through that kind of trauma. And so um, I'm, I'm really never felt the need to apologize for that. Like, yes, I can understand your burden, but you are really tone deaf mm-hmm. when it comes to mine. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time as your book was about to come out, mm-hmm. there was quite a lot going on in, <laughs> in the rest of your life. You were getting married and mm-hmm. having a baby. Yeah. I, <laughs> to show you how much was going on, I got married at uh, City Hall that morning. And literally, I had to say to my ex-husband, like, the only time I have is to do it like that morning, that... Uh, We had a a small sort of family brunch at a favorite soul food restaurant. I had a radio interview for the book that afternoon. And that evening, I did my first um, book signing at Barnes & Noble in Park Slope in Brooklyn. And I was pregnant. (laughs) There's a lot going on. Quite a bit going on. (laughs) So having a baby didn't slow you down at all. Uh, The year after your son was born, you were appointed executive editor of Essence magazine And one of the things that you tackled really early was the issue of race representation Mm -hmm. um, in magazines. I read that you made a decision in 2001 to put the model Alec Weck on the cover. Mm -hmm. What made you want particularly to feature her and how did that play out? So two things. It was, you know, it's a magazine, so it's a group decision. I have an editor-in-chief that I report to and... um, we have a there's a beauty department. Those those it has to sort of be a, a mutual decision. Um, beautiful blue black models from the Sudan. They're kind of the rage in fashion right now. That was not the case with Alec. Um, she's even much much darker than an, an African American woman um, would be. She had short natural hair, which you did not see at that time. And so for her to be making the strides that she was, um, I just remember the first time I saw her on the cover of Elle magazine, and I stopped dead in my tracks at a newsstand and just snatched it up and tried to buy additional copies. And it was a moment, but she wasn't being recognized in black press for it. Um, There was a lot of controversy about whether or not black people felt Alec was beautiful, you know? They felt that um, she wasn't traditionally beautiful. Uh, A lot of people felt that way, and they also felt that... uh, I love it that there's this idea of traditional beauty. Yeah. Well, she's not girl next door, all American, black girl. But she doesn't look like the models that we use in Essence magazine at all. Um, and so I kind of understood that. But to say that she wasn't attractive, like we felt very strongly at Essence that how are we not recognizing her? She's on the cover of Elle. She's on the cover of these major uh, white magazines. She's doing all of these friends. And we haven't done anything yet. Um, And so we did this absolutely beautiful cover and it was heartbreaking because it was the lowest selling issue of the year. And people wrote in really nasty letters saying that 
we had bought into the joke that white people were holding her up as beautiful um, to laugh, really, at black women and black beauty because they knew that she wasn't, that she was... um, It was the worst kind of exoticization for them, and they felt as a magazine we had bought into that. It was a really difficult moment for morale at the magazine. It still stings to talk about it, actually. Um, The second thing is that it looked like my career didn't slow down, but it absolutely slowed down. Um, I wouldn't have considered taking, you know, executive editor is more of a managerial position, and I am a writer. (laughs) So I quickly found myself doing things in management like, oh, my God, how did I get here? Um, But I also couldn't find quiet time and space to write when Sule was very young. Like, he was too young to kind of train into, which is, you know, he he was a really cool kid. Like, we would go to cafes and write together, or he would learn to curl up with a book while he knew mom was on deadline. And being in the same room was, like, enough for us. But when he was a baby, I couldn't train him to do that. And so editing became the thing that my mind could still have space for. But you know, I was always thinking about what is the next going to be and book going to be. And it took me 20 years to write the next book. So, as you said, it took you 20 years to write your second <laughs> book, which has just come out. Um, and it's it marks the 20th anniversary of one of the seminal albums of the late 1990s, mm-hmm. The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Um, one of the things I really like about that book is, is how you use a whole bunch of voices, but what you're really writing about is a period in time. Mm-hmm. And that kind of late 90s hip-hop culture... When you look back on that, having lived through it and been really, you know, in a front row seat, what do you think characterised that period? The 90s, okay, so for many, I think for white Americans in many ways, like if you look back at like shows like Dynasties, the 80s was the era of excess. For a black hip-hop community, the 90s was our era of excess. There was, like, black music execs. There were black record labels. I mean, black music execs and major record labels. There were expense accounts that were really— even the writers benefited from the expense accounts because we were, you know, you could go have a fabulous lunch that you wouldn't pay for yourself. Like, you know, let's do lunch for— five at China Grill, and it would always be the record exec guy that would pick up the bills. So, um, you know, we were starting to, when I first started doing music journalism, like hip-hop acts came on at two o'clock in the morning, and they were grungy, and you wore sneakers, and you were always ready for something to pop off or having to duck or a fight. And, And the 90s, things became very sort of sexy. There was just a lot of money. Um... The music was blowing up. There was a kind of pride also in the rest of the world recognizing that we had this amazing thing that um, we created in like the streets of the South Bronx, these kids who had nothing and the rest of the world. So there, were, there was all of that sort of being proud and being fearful at the same time. Something big was happening. And there was also a sense that we were losing um, not just control, but the exposure felt dangerous in many ways, that we were going to lose the uh, 
authenticity became a big topic in the 90s, keeping it real. What's real hip-hop? What's pop? Hip-hop gave many of us, um, not just the rap artists, I think that's what people could focus on, but there it started uh, the careers of many journalists, um, stylists, directors. Uh, it A lot of us were able to eat and find careers in ways that um, would not have traditionally been open to us. We had uh, things change so rapidly from the end of the 80s to the early 90s. But then by 1996, Tupac had been murdered. Biggie had been murdered. And we were in a, we were entering a period that felt very dark. Um, by 2000, like record in the early 2000s, all of these music, black music departments are starting to disappear. What used to be many labels are now like five major record labels. So things happen in a really concentrated period. How important was Lauren Hill in that culture? Oh, she was incredibly important um, for a number of reasons. Uh, one is her artistic talent was crazy. I mean, I just... I. I I'm not ashamed, like, ashamed to say we heard the Fugees and we loved the Fugees and the score was great, but everybody was like, when is she going solo? Um, because she was such a phenomenal MC with an incredible sense of musicality. Um, and I don't just mean as like a soul singer, but she really saw herself not just as Black, but as a diasporic citizen of Blackness. And she positioned herself that globally. So she felt very free to pull from all of these different kinds of Black musical traditions. She heard Afropop, I will do that. I hear reggae, I'll put in a little bit of that. I hear soul music, I'll put in a little bit of that. Because I think she felt like it was all her legacy. And she used it brilliantly and innovatively. So there was that on the artistic level, but there was also... You know, in the vein of an Alekwek who was so contested, Lauren's beauty was not contested and no one looked like her in mainstream. She was this beautiful chocolate skin with these dreadlocks. The fashion magazine loved her. She quickly became um, a kind of it girl in many ways, Um, but didn't actually ever leave that space of like being very rooted in like these black traditions like her her, she was very clear about her image and how it would be handled and what she would be wear and what she would how she would be styled. So when she showed up on a magazine cut, like I loved Harper's magazine. Like, you know, I'm a magazine girl, but it was a Harper's was really white. Like the covers were white, those images were white, the staff was white, it was just white. So being able to see Lauren on the cover, a double cover of something like Harper's, like I it was like the it was just like the world stood still for. A second, we were like, wow, something is really about to change. Um, when she broke through through the mainstream, that's exactly what it felt like. Like one of us is like broken through. And there was also a lot of pressure and anxiety about where hip hop was going. Um, and so because she wasn't the sexualized music of a Foxy Brown or a Little Kim, um, and she was receiving so much commercial success, a lot of people felt like, oh, she couldn't save hip hop. You know, mm. this is the antidote. A lot of pressure for a 23-year-old. Absolutely. Um, what did she bring for women in hip-hop? Because, you know, as you say, she kind of was a different type of archetype. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of women were finally like, I see myself. You know, 
the roles, the, the the avenues that were open for women and the way they were being depicted. You know, this is also the era of ghetto fabulousness. So where hip hop, you know, we used to all dress, dress like boys. Honestly, we were like in Tims and baggy jeans, and you wore things to concert to performances that you could run in. Puffy was really single-handedly the architect of ghetto fabulousness. Mm. Wanted to bring in. Um, like an old, you know, Harlem aesthetic that kind of dates back to the Renaissance of people getting dressed and looking nice and going out to nightclubs. Um, but that came with a lot of high-end designer attention. Um, but hip-hop completely transformed the the accessories floor of Gucci. Mm-hmm. You would go in and there would be filled with receptionists and secretaries um, all really trying to purchase that kind of cachet and it wasn't because of Gucci as the designer you know that it wasn't the history of the uh, Italian fashion the house. Italian have fashion house they really connected to it through hip-hop mm-hmm. um, but it was also very alienating for many women and so Lauren um, gave them something that felt accessible in and many she ways also sort of bridges in a way I mean people kind of forget what a great MC she mm-hmm. was because her sort of singing is so good and kind of leans into R&B and I think in a gendered way people tend to associate her with Mm R&B and forget how great she was at rhyming. Mm -hmm. So do you think that the relationship that women have with hip-hop now has evolved? Do you think it can now be more equal? It is definitely better than I think it's ever been. I think that people also recognize that women are consumers. <laughs> and so um, that helps. I also think we are in a moment of um, with hip hop also benefits from Me Too in certain ways that uh, while there isn't anywhere near enough discussion of the misogyny and the harassment in the music industry, um, that labels and radio stations are very aware that like pairing, playing ki- certain kinds of lyrical content now may have ramifications. Or playing music by R. Kelly. Yeah, or playing music. So I think that we're in a, I think that we're in a better space. And now you can look around. You can really, if you want to be a female DJ, you can see it. Um, DJ, you know, Beverly Bond, I mean, I think embodies that to go from being a DJ to being the architect of Black Girls Rock and then starting a Black Girls Rock Academy and also starting an academy, Scratch Academy, where DJs, female DJs can be and occupy the stage. I I think that um, young women today in hip hop grow up in a realm of possibility that we just did not grow up in. Well, Joan Morgan, it's been such a pleasure talking all this through with you today. Thank you so much for coming in. I'm very happy to be here and to share. Thank you. Joan Morgan visited Sydney Opera House in 2019 for All About Women. Find the link to her talk in our show notes. Join us on the podcast next week for the incredible story of American journalist and writer Sarah Smarsh. This podcast is produced out of the Sydney Opera House Talks and Ideas program and made by the It's a Long Story podcast team. Flo Mitchell, Nerida Ross, Susie Anderson, Josh Milch, Joshua Craig, John Gardner, Riley Edwards, Ellen O'Brien and Rachel Power. Our theme music is composed by Rainbow Chan. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time. <laughs>